You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, if you'll turn in your Bibles once again to Revelation chapter 2. Appreciate Toby, uh, Dallas, and Rachel filling in with Tyson being out from serving in that capacity this morning. Revelation chapter 2. We do have our notes available in our Google Drive folder if you'd like to follow along. We've also got them on the screen this morning as well. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to get into our text this morning together. Let's pray. God, we do praise you and thank you again just for the chance to gather with other believers this morning. We thank you for your written word and the instruction that it gives to us for our lives both as a church and also as individuals. Father, I pray that you would teach us this morning from your word. Help us to see the the timeless truths that you have uh, communicated to us this morning. I pray that we'd be able to mine those out as we study together. pray that we would understand you better. pray that we would understand um, the calling upon the church better. pray that we would better understand as individuals how we're to take and apply the instructions that were given to this church at Thyatira. Um, instructions that uh, I believe you still desire for us to implement today, Um, instructions that are so serious that they warrant your discipline if not followed. And so, God, I pray that we would be mindful of the seriousness as we approach your word this morning. Help us to um, approach it with the intent of not only hearing it proclaimed this morning, but being um, intentional doers of it as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 uh, is where we'll pick up this morning. It says, And to the angel of the church at Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking intently at um, the different churches mentioned in Revelation, the letters that Christ writes to those churches. We saw Ephesus, who was a church that had a very meaningful presence in its community, um, was working very hard, very tirelessly, was very busy doing the uh, acts of service that a church is called to do. Um, The criticism that Jesus hands out to that church, though, is that they have shifted in their motivation, that instead of doing things out of love, they're doing things out of duty. And Jesus warns and says that if things don't change, 
their presence in that community is going to end. Whether Jesus has to come and uh, proactively, uh, actively do that himself, or whether passively that's going to occur just because people will quit coming to that church and being a part of that church because there's no love attached to it any longer. Eventually the duty will run out and they will uh, distance themselves from that. And so Jesus calls them to repentance, calls them to return to the things that they were doing previously uh, in order to maintain that meaningful presence. We saw Smyrna, which is a church that from the outside looking in looks very poor, uh, looks like things aren't going their way, and yet Jesus says things aren't always what they seem, that they're in fact a very rich church. He has no criticism for the church. Um, instead, he uh, seeks to prepare them for future tribulation that's to come. They've done a great job of persevering through what they've already experienced, but it's going to get worse, and Jesus calls them to faithful perseverance in light of that coming persecution. And then two weeks ago, we saw Pergamum, a church that, again, doing a lot of things well, but had begun to tolerate some false teaching in relationship to Christian freedom, sexual ethics, and it was causing concern long-term, and Jesus brings about a call to repentance for them as well, that if they do not repent, he will then enact his judgment upon them for that behavior. And so that brings us to Thyatira today, and I told you earlier that there's a lot of similarities between these two churches, maybe enough to where we could have packaged them together, but I really wanted to try to approach these individually. And so pending time today and how far or how long it takes us to complete uh, we may have some time for question and answer at the end related to the application of this church's instruction to us. All right, so Thyatira, growth does not excuse compromise. Our summary sentence for today, a church must grow in faithful love and ongoing service, but must not compromise by tolerating beliefs or behavior in order to remain in good favor with the world. A church must grow in faithful love and ongoing service, but must not compromise by tolerating beliefs or behavior in order to remain in good favor with the world. For our kids, it's actually the same summary sentence as last week, that being obedient in some things isn't the same as being obedient in all things, and Jesus calls to be obedient in all things. Once again, we've got a church that's doing a lot of things well, um, and they're to be commended for those things. A lot of activity going on in this church, a lot of service going on in this church, a lot of correct motivation going, going on in this church. And while there's high praise, high commendation for what they're doing, there's also very serious rebuke for some of their failures. And so while they were growing in, in a faithful love, and they were ongoing service, uh, they were growing in both capacities, they were compromising in belief and behavior uh, in order to remain friends with the world. And we're going to see why they were tempted to do that and why some of them were giving in to that. As a way of an introduction, I want to introduce um, and talk about uh, five different topics that really shape our understanding of this passage. So let's kind of look at those real quickly. Uh, the town of Thyatira. First of all, this is the longest letter written to any of these churches, and yet it's the smallest church in the least important city. You say, well, why would, why would Jesus communicate the most to the least? And I think one thing that we should walk away from today is that purity in every church is important to Jesus, regardless of size. Okay, so 
while some of these churches were big and in prominent cities, um, Thyatira is kind of off the map. Like, it's not an important area. This church wouldn't have been very large. In fact, um, some commentators believe there were other bigger churches that you would have had to pass. Because remember we said that these churches are kind of on a walkway from where John writes at Patmos when he sends it out to be delivered. These churches are written in order of that delivery man getting to those churches, okay? Um, And he would have bypassed several other more important churches from a human standpoint before getting to Thyatira. So Jesus was very intentional to bypass some of these more important churches to come to a very small, insignificant church, and he gives the longest instruction to that church. I mean, if, if that doesn't wake us up to the relevance of this passage, I don't know what would, because we as a church in this community are far smaller than a lot of churches in the surrounding areas. Sonoy as a town is a lot smaller than the other towns surrounding us, and so there's more prominent churches, there are bigger churches than us in this community. But Jesus gives the longest letter to the smallest church, and I think that should remind us that our church right here in Sonoy, with the amount of members that we have, we're on God's radar, right? He cares about the purity. He cares about the doctrine. He cares about the action within this church just as much as he does any other church in this area that may be far bigger than us. Um, there's no significant idol worship and no significant emperor worship going on in this city. Again, it's just not that prominent of a town. We've talked about some of the other cities and how they were hotbeds for idol worship and emperor worship, and that was leading to a lot of persecution We don't have really a hint of persecution here within this passage. The quality of life for people here, though, was aligned with one's involvement in what every commentator refers to as a trade guild, which was a type of labor union within this city. So in order to buy and sell and trade and to really develop your business and succeed economically, you had to be a part of these trade unions within this city. And so these were very important to the way of life for people living in Thyatira. And that's where the main threat comes. So let's talk a little bit about these trade guilds that existed in Thyatira. Um, First of all, for one to be successful economically, you had to belong to one. And they were prominent when it came to um, wool, linen, dyes, leather, pottery, bronze, other metals. All of these things are kind of coming out of this city And in order to really be a part of it, and in order to be able to buy, uh, trade, and sell with others, you had to be a part of these unions. Lydia, who we learn about in Acts 16, 14, she's one of the um, initial members of the church at Thessalonica. Paul leads her to Christ. She is described as a trader of purple goods, and she was from Thyatira. Okay, so she was most likely a part of one of these trade guilds, at least at some point in her um, history of selling purple goods. Here's the kicker, though. To belong to one of these trade guilds, it necessitated you align with the patron god of that guild. And it necessitated you participate in food festivals, which oftentimes led to sexual sins occurring. So really, doesn't sound like a big deal to be a part of one of these labor unions. But what came with being a part of the labor union is that you were then aligned with the god of that labor union. And so you were sacrificing to that god, You were participating in these food festivals where food was being offered to these idols, and then you were eating of it, partaking of it, which was supposed to produce this um, spiritual, worshipful experience, and that oftentimes led to the, um, the sexual immorality that would come out of that. So you can see 
very quickly, a Christian is going to have to make compromises in the choices that they're making for their life if they want to succeed economically. Basically, am I going to remain pure within the church or am I going to lay aside some of my beliefs in order to provide for my family? Now, again, there's not really a, a hint of persecution that was tied to this. It was just simply you weren't going to have a job. You weren't going to be able to make the necessary money that you needed if you didn't align with these people. And so that's where it became difficult for a Christian. Am I going to compromise some of the things that I know, some of the things that I really believe that God wants me to be and do? Am I going to lay those aside in order to provide for my family? That's where these trade guilds came into play. All right? For this church is that there was a mindset that a lifestyle accepted by the world is not in conflict with a culture of membership within the church. That's what this lady Jezebel, who's probably not named Jezebel, but is kind of referred to as Jezebel, and we'll talk in a minute why that's the case. She was pushing, she was helping to push this mindset, you can do both. You can be a believer, you can be a member of our church, and in good standing with our church while also making these compromises. That God understands, God understands that you need to do this to survive, and so you can have both. That this culture of membership within the church was not gonna be in violation by simply accepting this mindset that the world was pushing. Its biggest issue is one of the great values of our culture today, tolerance, right? Tolerance is what you hear in the media, that we as individuals should tolerate the beliefs of others, the actions of others, that we shouldn't um, seek to change how somebody wants to think or act or behave. Tolerance is a valued um, attribute in our culture. And it was causing the church to really question what it was supposed to do. The movement was being encouraged by a woman compared to the Old Testament lady Jezebel. It was being tolerated by the church as a whole. Let's talk a little bit about Jezebel so we can understand the setting in case we're not familiar with the Old Testament. Jezebel was a queen of Israel. And when we think of the name Jezebel, um, most of us probably think of evil when we hear that name, right? There's not not really anybody that I'm ever uh, familiar with that goes by the name Jezebel, right? Like that's not one of the names that makes the list of top baby names um, each year. It's just, it's just viewed as kind of the personification of evil. Like there's not really anything good about her in scripture. In fact, she's basically the ruling authority in, in Israel from 1 Kings chapter 16 through 2 Kings chapter 9 especially. She's married to King Ahab, but she's really the power and the driving force behind everything that he does. I mean, if he's making a decision, if he's acting or doing anything it's probably because Jezebel told him that he should do that. Um, he, he's definitely pictured in Scripture as a man who doesn't possess his own ideas, who is very laid back in his approach to leadership and allows her to lead through him. She's guilty of encouraging the nation of Israel to worship pagan gods. We see this in 1 Kings sixteen thirty one. Ahab, who is an Israelite, marries outside of Israel, marries Jezebel to be his queen, and then she brings the Baal worship into Israel at that time. She's also responsible for killing the people of the Lord. There's a, a mass um, massacre of prophets in 1 Kings 18, 13. 
She's also responsible for uh, pushing for the death of uh, Naboth, who had the vineyard that, Ab- uh, that Ahab wanted in 1 Kings 21. It's like a really pitiful picture of Ahab in that chapter where he's just pouting over the fact that he can't have a piece of property that he wants. Jezebel comes in to console him, takes over the situation, kind of um, sets Naboth up to basically be killed with false testimony so that her husband can have the piece of property that he wants as the king of Israel. So she, she's just an awful lady. And, and here's the passages that you could go back and read if you'd like to, to learn and understand a little bit about her if you're not familiar with some of her stories. But essentially, that name, and I don't think the doctrines that we're talking about here in this letter are that different from the Nicolaitans and the, and the Balaam um, push that we see in Pergamum. It's probably all the same stuff because in Pergamum, we're talking about what? Sexual immorality, food being offered to idols. But what you really have that's different in this church is that it's being pushed by a leader within the church, right? Not just some church members that are doing this. This falls on leadership. This is a lady who's calling herself a prophetess. And then Jesus is very clear to say she calls herself this, right? Like like Jesus doesn't even give her the doesn't even give her the, um, the right to think that, that he's calling her that, right? Like she's a self-proclaimed prophetess. But essentially what you have is the church acting like Ahab here and the other church leaders acting like Ahab. They're letting this woman control them and giving her a platform to teach within the church. And that's where some of these people are being led astray because it's not just coming from young believers in the church that are misguided or misled. It's coming from an authoritative presence in the church. And that's where the real danger lied for this church. And then Jesus is given another picture here where we refer back to um, descriptions of him in Revelation chapter 1. First of all, Jesus is seen as the Son of God says in verse 18 to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He's seen as the Son of God here. While it was not a major place of idol worship, they did value Apollo, who was the son of Zeus. So he would have been viewed as their understanding of the Son of God. So Jesus reminds them that he is the Son of God. And then through the eyes of fire and the feet of bronze, he's seen as a coming judge. References back to Revelation 1, 14 and 15. What I do find unique is that Thyatira was a big producer of bronze, specifically a special type that you could only get in that city. And Jesus uses that word for talking about his feet. That basically, I don't need your bronze. I've already got it. I'm the owner and possessor of the best things that you have. And my feet are clad in these things and I'm walking in to judge where needed um, according to what I know about your church. So that eyes of fire, once again, he sees all the intimate corners of this church, knows exactly what's going on, and he's going to reveal that knowledge as he begins to unfold what he sees, what he commends about the church, and what he criticizes about the church. All right, so let's jump in now to the text with number one, the church is commended for faithful works. For our kids, Jesus says the church uh, does some things right. I left the word does out. uh, Jesus says the church does some things right. He says in verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance 
and that your latter works exceed the first. They're commended for faithful works. First of all, they're praised for a motivation of love. Remember, Ephesus was a very busy church, but they lacked love. Jesus very, very front and center says, I know your works, and I know your love that's attached to your works. So they're praised for their correct motivation. This is a church that's doing the right thing, and they're doing it for the right reasons. They're not doing it out of duty like Ephesus. He says, I know your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. They're also praised for not quitting. This is a church that is pressing on. This is a church that keeps going. This is an ongoing act of service by this church. They're enduring. The word for service there is the same word that's tied to our understanding of deacon. So their service was very specific. They were meeting the needs of others, which is what deacons oftentimes are called upon to do. They were taking care of each other. They were loving each other. They were serving each other. They're praised for these things. Number three, they're also praised for their ongoing growth. And that's where Jesus says, your latter works exceed your first works. This church was better now than when it had started. Remember, Jesus rebukes Ephesus and says, you need to go back to what you were doing when you started, right? Like you've regressed. You were a church that started out great. You loved and you served. Fast forward into the future a little bit. You're a church that serves, but a church that's forgotten how to love. So he says, let's rewind and start doing things that you used to do. With this church at Thyatira, he says, you're a church that started out loving and serving. Fast forward, you're a church that loves better and serves more than when you, used to, when you, were, when you were first started, basically. So this church is highly commended for what they're doing. They're a faithful church. They're a loving church. They're a very active church that serves and cares for the needs of others. And Jesus praises them greatly. And the issue that we're going to find is that while Ephesus was a church that had correct doctrine but, met, but was missing the love component, Thyatira is a church that loves but is missing the doctrinal purity. All right, remember in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, it says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So they both have to go together. Right, you need like doctrinal purity. You need a church that loves theology, promotes right theology, that right thinking of who God is, but can do so in an attitude of love. Ephesus, love doctrine, was missing the love. Thyatira loves really well, but they're missing some of that key doctrine. All right, so the church is committed for faithful works, and we don't want to minimize that. Um, this church is doing a lot of great things, a lot of great things. But there's some compromise that has infiltrated the church that's a cause of great concern for Jesus. So number two, the church is criticized for excessive compromise. The church is criticized for excessive compromise. For our kids, Jesus says, says the church is overlooking some things. So they've do, they're doing a lot of great things, but they're missing some really important things as well that they've compromised on. And they're criticized for that excessive compromise. He says in verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, 
that reference to that Old Testament queen who, who led Israel into immorality, idol worship. This would have been tough. I mean, think about this. There's a real woman here in Thyatira who's doing this, and this letter shows up, and this is the Sunday morning sermon, and everybody would have known who we're talking about here. I mean, this is one more call to repentance because she gets called out in front of everybody. First Timothy 5 says that, that, that if we rebuke people and call people to repent and they don't, that sometimes it becomes necessary to bring that before the church and say, hey, we are letting you know that this person needs to repent, that this person is in sin and they're not changing, and we need your help to call them to that repentance. This would have been very public. Everybody would have known who was being talked about here because her name's probably not Jezebel. It's a woman who calls herself a prophetess. <clears throat> she's teaching and she's seducing the church members, specifically into the same areas of sexual ethics and Christian liberty compromises. Jesus says, I've given her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her actions. All right, first of all, I think what stands out to me as I'm reading this and studying this, number one, good works do not atone for sinful mistakes. Because here, I don't know about you, but here's where I might be tempted if I'm, if I'm in this church. <clears throat> Even if I'm convicted about the compromise in this area, it would be very easy, I think, for me to overlook it and emphasize the things that we're doing right and just think to myself, okay, if we keep doing these right things, we'll kind of outwork ourselves in the areas that we've failed. I mean, I don't know about you, this is sometimes true in my own personal life. I may be convicted about things in my life, sinful things, but I'm going to minimize them. I'm going to minimize those things in light of the good things that I am doing. Yeah, I messed up today, but let's be honest, like 80% of the time I was spot on with what I should have been doing. And so I'm not going to be broken over my sin to repentance. Instead, I'm going to self-promote my own righteousness and say, yeah, I failed a little bit, but man, I was really good most of the time. I did a lot of great things today, and I'm not compelled to maybe repent at the end of the day for where I failed. I don't know, that may not be you, that's certainly me, to where I'm going to highlight the things that I've been doing well and really minimize the call to repentance in my own life. And I think that's where Jesus steps in and says, you guys are awesome. You're doing a lot of great things, but you need to repent of this stuff right here. Like this doesn't minimize your call to need and call and need to repent about where you failed. So to me, good works do not atone for sinful mistakes as a message that kind of rings true for this church. They were never going to serve their way out of repentance. Let me say that again. They were never going to serve their way out of repentance. They could never do enough good stuff for Jesus to say, yeah, you're right. You don't need to repent of that. You've done enough good stuff to where I can just overlook that. They don't ever serve their way out of their need to repent. No amount of love, no amount of service can compensate for the toleration of evil that was happening in that church. <clears throat> Which to me just reminds me as a church it doesn't matter how many people we're helping. And there's some bigger churches out there that have big organizations that help needy people. But if they're tolerating sin in their church, that stuff doesn't matter, right? Like it can be, it can be something that Jesus commends them for, 
But at the end of the day, there's still a call to repent of the toleration of evil within that church. Same would be true for us. You know, we can talk about um, giving to the Coweta Pregnancy Services and serving with them. We can talk about giving to I-58. We can talk about serving within the community of Sonoy. But if we're tolerating evil, that stuff doesn't, oh, that stuff doesn't weigh out our need to repent of the things that we're missing in our church. And that's the call that Jesus has to this church here. Number two, compromise has more to do with Satan than with love. Compromise has more to do with Satan than love. Because that's what you hear when it comes to tolerance and compromise, that it's, it's pushed in the name of love, right? Like we should love others, so we should compromise and tolerate what others are doing. And Jesus references it in a different way. He calls it the deep things of Satan. He says, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. And there's, there's a dispute as to what is actually being talked about here. Um, in 1 Corinthians 2.10, 1 Corinthians 2, we'll start in verse 9, it says, But as it is written, when no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. There's some commentators that think Jezebel and her people, and we'll call her Jezebel because we don't have her real name, that their people were basically pushing this idea that their doctrine, their teaching was a, a level of depth that other people didn't know. And so they were there to bring that to light. That the deep things of God meant you can have both. That, that God's okay with you being a church member and, and, and aligning yourself with him, but also behind, behind the scenes throughout the week, aligning yourselves with these trade unions where you're giving allegiance to the, the enemy, basically. That the deep things of God is that you can actually merge those things together. There's some people that think that they were pushing this as deep things of God, and so Jesus corrects it and says, no, it's actually the deep things of Satan. There's another view the commentators hold to that says, no, they were saying this was the deep things of Satan, but they were coming at it from the argument, and I think I heard somebody talking in our discussion groups, that basically you have to know evil to fight evil. Now, basically, I need to expose myself to what's happening at these food festivals in order to better understand it and, and better, to, uh, better to speak to it. That, that basically, I need to know the deep things of Satan for me to actually battle the deep things of Satan. Either one is fine. It doesn't really change the, the understanding of the text. Um, but I do think what's important to note is that compromise and tolerance has more to do with the deep things of Satan than it does with the, the, the name of love, which oftentimes is what it's pushed under. Um, and Jesus calls it for what it really is, a theology of Satan. All right, number three. The church is corrected with loving discipline. For our kids, Jesus promises discipline if things don't change. All right, so going back to Revelation 2, he calls out the woman that they're tolerating, Jezebel. She's seducing them in the area of sexual ethics and Christian freedom. 
Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. Those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. All the churches will know I am he who searches mind and heart. You read that and you think heavy judgment, heavy anger, and if you're not careful, you miss the overwhelming amount of grace that's being extended in this passage. There is so much grace being extended before judgment ever comes upon this situation. I mean, think about it. He says, I've given her time to repent, but she refuses to repent. Then he gives a, a, uh, um, a glimpse into what is coming if repentance doesn't happen as this letter is being read aloud to everybody. Right? He says, I'm going to throw her on a sick bed. Those who have been following with her, I'm going to throw into great tribulation unless they repent. I'm going to strike her children dead. There's all kinds of grace wrapped around this message of judgment. And if we're not careful, we hit the judgment part and we, and we miss God's grace and mercy that he has already delayed this for a long period of time. That this is very consistent with what we see in Scripture, that he's not hasty with his judgment. Romans 2, 4 and 2 Peter 3, 9 both talk about God's long-suffering in order to draw people to repentance. And he says, I'm patient with you. I don't bring judgment because I long to give you opportunity after opportunity to repent. And he's reached the point now where judgment's coming because she refuses to repent. As we continue to work through Revelation, we're going to see time and time again that repentance and the opportunity to change one's mind is held out as a possibility throughout all of Revelation. I mean, Revelation is full of judgment. It's full of bowls of wrath and trumpets and all kinds of judgment that comes upon people that reject Jesus. But time and time again, we're told this judgment comes upon them because they refuse to repent. An example, Revelation chapter 9. And I think this is important because so oftentimes we hear people's criticism of God and they criticize his lack of tolerance. They criticize the fact that he would bring judgment upon people. And we miss the fact that he's given so much opportunity for that judgment to not come. In Revelation chapter 9, verse 20, it says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Even when they see other people being judged for those things, they don't give them up. And so future judgment is held out for these people as we continue to work through Revelation. They don't repent, right? Like God is merciful and gracious and he doesn't have to extend the opportunity to repent, right? He would be very just and very right to just bring his wrath upon sin but because he's loving, because he's gracious, because he's merciful, he extends opportunities for repentance and the people reject it. In Revelation chapter 16, in verse 9, it 
says, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. This is, this is a passage that would even tie into the, the, the false mindset that God would not allow people to spend eternity in hell because those people are going to cry out for forgiveness in hell, right? Like, how could God just close his ears to people repenting in hell when they finally get it, when they finally understand and they're sorry? And this passage says, no, like even in the midst of judgment, they're crying out against God. They're not repentant. They're crying out against him in anger. They're not giving him glory. All through Revelation, we see God acting against those who fail to repent. And his judgment comes in response to that lack of repentance. So he extends grace before judgment. Number two, he's thorough in his judgment. He comes in such a way that he plans to handle everybody that's involved. He's got judgment planned for the leader of this movement. This woman, Jezebel, says that she's going to be thrown onto a sick bed. He's got plans for those that have fallen prey to her deception. Those who commit adultery with her, I'll throw into great tribulation unless they repent. And then probably the reference to her children are those that are considered spiritual offspring of her that have really bought so much into her teaching that maybe they've become teachers as well. They're a little bit different simply than those that have committed the sexual immorality with her. They're those that she's kind of birthed into this teaching and they're, they're helping to reproduce it. So, so God's coming and he's saying, I'm going to bring judgment upon her, those that are helping her, and those that have been deceived by her if repentance doesn't happen. So he's got a, he's got a plan for a thorough judgment where he's going to cover everybody. And real judgment is coming here. He's talking about sickness. We've talked recently about 1 Corinthians 11 where uh, Christians were getting sick because they weren't partaking of the Lord's Supper properly. All guilty parties are addressed here. Jesus is coming to judge because the church has failed to judge here. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, there was clear instructions that if a prophet came on the scene and began to lead people to worshiping other gods, they were to deal with that prophet. They were not to listen. They were not to tolerate. They were not to compromise. They were to identify the teaching, measure the teaching, and were to act against the teaching, right? Jesus never gives all authority to leadership over his people, including elders within a church, right? The church membership is always held responsible for false teaching that gets tolerated. They're to address it if a leader ever sways, if I ever sway from God's word and begin to teach false things, responsibility falls on this church to correct it. And that was what supposed to have already happened. Now Jesus is having to step in and discipline because the church has failed to do so. And Jesus has given us the tool of church discipline for our church, right? We, we talked this morning, what type of discipline should a Christian expect if he fails to repent of his sin? He should certainly expect to be disciplined by the church before Jesus ever has to step in. I think Jesus has put in parameters, and we've tried to really put in parameters within our church through accountability groups, that sin would be addressed by us before Jesus ever has to bring in some type of sickbed for somebody. And I know there was some discussion about we never want to be guilty like Job's friends or even the people that Jesus was talking to when he talks about the people that died in the, in the tower that fell. Hey, is that because they did something wrong? Jesus talks about people that had disabilities, and, and was that tied to a sin of their parent? 
I don't think we're ever to be in the business of saying that somebody's circumstances is a direct result of their sin. I don't know that that's the point of the passage. But I do think as individual Christians, we should expect whether anybody else could ever tell us or not that this is happening because of my sin, that there should be a real fearful expectation that if I'm aware of sin in my life and I know I'm being disobedient, that I should expect at some point Jesus is gonna step in and do something. That if I'm truly a believer and I'm at least aligning myself with his people by name, which causes harm to the name of Christ by doing so, that Jesus is going to step in at some point and say, I will not tolerate the sin any longer. So whether we could ever clearly identify and say, hey, you had the flu this year because of a sin that you committed, I don't think we could ever authoritatively say that. But if there's things that are happening in our life in conjunction with known unrepentant sin, I also don't think we should step back and say, those two are not related at all. (laughs) There's a very good chance that they are related. Because Jesus says, I'm going to bring this type of judgment. I've given you a chance to repent. You're aware of the sin and you haven't repented, which means this isn't the first time it's been called out. This isn't Jezebel for the very first time saying, oh, this is the deep things of Satan, not God. I've been misinformed. She's been told before this. John maybe have told her before, before he ended up at Patmos. She's been given given opportunity to repent, which means she knows that she's supposed to repent and has not. And now Jesus says, I'm gonna bring discipline. And that should cause some real caution for us. And we talked about it in C group. This idea of fearing God and what role does that play in the life of a believer? I think it's very appropriate for us to teach our kids, especially that if they know there's sin in their life and they don't repent and they call themselves a believer, they should expect discipline to happen. That God lovingly disciplines his children. And we may not always be able to identify that on the outside, but again, if I'm an individual believer and I know things aren't going right in my life and I know there's sin that I'm not repenting of, I shouldn't be so quick to disconnect the two from from being related. Jesus says, I'm bringing thorough judgment to this situation. And I put in my notes, we should live in fear of the ramifications of our failure to repent. It should drive us to repent. We're not talking about we're not talking about a long list of laundry that we have to do to atone for our sins, right? That's not the religion that we're, we're in. It'd be different if we said, if you do this, then you have to do this to fix it. And we have people that are behind on the list, right? Like, I'm trying, I've just been busy this week and I can't do all the stuff you told me to do to fix this. We're not talking about a big hard thing. And yet we are talking about a big hard thing because we're talking about humbly coming before our creator and admitting that we're wrong admitting that we've been selfish, that we've been ruling our life the way that we want to rather than the way he wants us to live and admitting that and turning from that. And that is a hard thing to do, but it's something that can happen like that, right? Like it's not something that takes a week or two weeks to, to catch up, right? It's not, I gotta work myself out of this. This church was working very well, but it had, it had a call to repent of some very serious actions. All right, number three, Jesus creates boundaries so we can even avoid this type of judgment. See, these people were in this situation because they weren't listening to what they were already called to do. Jesus says, I'm gonna bring this judgment upon these people. All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I'll give to each of you according to your works. 
But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I don't lay any other burden upon you. Hold fast to what you have until I come. So now Jesus shifts a little bit, and he starts to talk to the people that have not been affected by this directly. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to keep on doing what you've been doing. I'm not adding anything to your list of things to do. And the language here about um, not laying on you any other burden, it ties in directly with Acts chapter 15. We read this passage a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about uh, food offered to idols and trying to understand the context of what that looked like in their culture. But in Acts chapter 15, you'll remember the, um, the council comes together talking about what to mandate upon Gentiles. And in verse 28, it says, It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. That was the instructions given. And we said that once that's given, Paul kind of unpacks that a little bit and says, hey, don't overthink this. Like if you accidentally eat meat offered to idols, you haven't done anything demonic because Gods aren't real, the false gods aren't real, the worship experience isn't real, and so if you've ignorantly eaten of it, don't fret about it too much. But he does caution them and says, don't go actively seeking to eat this meat and involving yourselves in these festivals, because that leads you down a sinful path. And so Jesus reminds them and says, hey, I'm not asking anything different of you than what we've already asked, that you abstain from these things, and if you'll abstain from them, you'll stay protected and judgment will never have to come. You won't even have to repent of these things if you'll just stay clear of these things. God always gives boundaries in Scripture. When he gives instructions, he gives us boundaries to protect us, to protect us from a need to judge and a need to discipline. And the reason he's even doing it is to protect them. The discipline comes to protect them. It comes for good purposes and good reasons. And Jesus creates these boundaries to help avoid the need for judgment. Then we wrap up with number four. The church is challenged with future promises. The church is challenged with future promises. For kids, Jesus promises eternity with him for those who repent. He says in verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, I'll give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. First of all, we will participate in the purposes of Christ. I told you that in all these letters, the promises are tied to the end of Revelation. In Revelation nineteen fifteen. As Jesus comes in all of his glory, it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. At the end, Jesus comes to judge the nations. 
And to the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers, we're promised that we will participate in these purposes. There's also a lot of quotes from Psalm chapter 2, which is a messianic prophecy. Psalm chapter 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's the same language used here in Revelation. The idea that when Jesus comes, he comes to rule the nations, and I think he does so in two capacities. One, the throne room, the throne room is full of people from every nation worshiping him, right? There's the idea that Jesus comes and reigns over their hearts in a way where they do repent and respond. Then there's also the flip side where Jesus comes and rules and reigns with this rod of iron where they don't repent. And he does dump out his, his, his fury upon them. And in both capacities, the promise to those who overcome is that we participate with Jesus in those purposes. And secondly, we will enjoy eternity with Christ. And that too is extended to us, which again, in light of the, the concern, what are they concerned about? They're concerned, concerned about food and clothing, right? Because I've got I've to make money. I've got to be economically sound to take care of my family. So I've got to align with these trade guilds. And if I don't, we may not have food to eat. We may not have clothing to wear. And, and Jesus reminds them once again of the future and the future glories to come. And he makes a reference to the morning star, giving the morning star. In verse 28, I will give him the morning star. Jesus refers to himself as the morning star, Revelation chapter 22, another, again, another reference to the end of the book with this promise. Revelation twenty two sixteen. 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. 2 Peter 1, 19 also references Jesus as this bright morning star. So in the end, our great reward is to be with Jesus. Some points that I think are worth remembering. Like I said, there's a lot of similarities between these two churches. I've tried to keep it as fresh as possible today and talking through it. Um, number one, even as a small church, our purity, doctrine, and love matter to God. I think we as a small church definitely need to see that from this letter. Even as a small church, our purity, doctrine, and love matter greatly to God. Number two, good works do not negate our need to repent. Even though we're saved, and even though we don't believe that if you fail to repent of a sin, and then you die in the middle of the night, that you, you aren't forgiven for that sin. I went to school with people that believed that. And I couldn't imagine the un, unbelievable pressure at the end of the day to make sure you got everything. But I went to school with people that believed if you don't confess everything at the end of the day and then you die in your sleep, that those sins aren't forgiven. And that's not the message of the gospel, right? But I think if we're not careful, we minimize the need to ongoingly repent of sins simply by clinging to that one expression of repentance. And scripture is real clear. We have a responsibility to continually ongoing repent of known sin in our life. 
Number three, we have responsibility to confront rather than tolerate sin around us. Jesus certainly expected this church to deal with the sin rather than tolerate it. And then number four, there is a real threat of discipline if we fail to repent responsibly. And I added this idea of responsibly at the end, meaning, again, I don't think that, <clears throat> I don't need to be concerned right now about my waking up this morning with, without a voice and start questioning, are there sins that I forgot to repent of yesterday? And I don't, I don't want to create a, a sense of fear that, that we're like digging and trying to, to come up with things that maybe are, are affecting our circumstances. But if I know that there is blatant sin in my life, and then it's going completely unconfessed in my life. And as a teacher within this church, I probably should pause and say, is God affecting my ability to teach? Because I'm, I'm affecting myself to be a, I'm, I'm limiting myself to be an effective witness by my actions. Then maybe so. Jesus says, I will bring discipline for your lack of repentance. And I think that's an individual thing that we have to be aware of. If there's known sin in our life that we are willingly not confessing, there should be great concern as to the discipline that might would come. But it's that known sin that we're actively digging in on and saying, I will not confess this. I will not repent of this. It's not the, the unknown sins that, I mean, we're just sinful people. We sin, we sin a lot, right? And there's probably things that we don't even, we're not even aware of that we need to confess of. I'm talking about more the, the, the willingly digging in on things, those things we ought to be concerned about if we're not repenting responsibly, all right? Which leads us with some application questions. Are we growing in the same deeds as this church? So as a church here, are we growing in the same deeds that the church at Thyatira was? Because again, we don't want to minimize. They were doing a lot of great things that we should follow their example in. Are we growing in our faithful service? Are we motivated by love in the ways that Thyatira was and the ways that Ephesus wasn't? Are we ever guilty of working harder rather than repenting? Is anybody willing to admit like me that I mean, there's sometimes where I just, I'm just not as burdened about repenting because I'm willing to highlight all the other things that I am doing right? And if so, I think we need to have a wake-up call that says, hey, I need to be more mindful of things that I need to repent of. My kids need to hear me say, I'm sorry, right? Like, I can't justify lashing out at my kid at the end of the day, and then when I go to bed, say, well, you know what? He just doesn't understand. I worked all day for him, and I paid for him to, to do all the things that he likes to do. I don't get to excuse my actions when I come home with my kid or my wife and justify it by the day that I put forth to help serve them, right? My service all day long for them doesn't make up for the things that I need to apologize to them for. Number three, are we in danger of compromising with culture to remain friends with the world? And here's where I don't know as a church that we are necessarily, I'm not aware of anything that I believe that we're tolerating within this church that parallels with what was going on at Thyatira. I don't think our kids are in danger of seeing anything in this church and being led astray by things that we're allowing to occur within this church. But I have felt at times in our own personal lives that there may be things that get tolerated in our social circle or our family, our extended family, sinful behaviors by family members and friends that call themselves believers that we put ourselves around, we put our kids around that maybe comes off as tolerant towards that behavior. 
And so our family worship question this week, and this is where I want us to kind of close out. We've got about 10, 15 minutes or so. And we can maybe dialogue about this and if you've got questions about this. Are there any sins in our family social circle that we as a family don't agree with and want to avoid a perception of tolerating? Is there anything within your social circle, people that your family hangs out with, or your family that your family hangs out with? Is there any sinful behaviors? Because here, this is, a great, this is a great way to step back and clarify for your kids, because I'm not necessarily advocating that you should never be around that. But I think for some of us, our kids need to know that mommy and daddy aren't okay with this. Right? Like we're going to go today and we're going to be around these people and they're going to maybe be doing things or, or you may be aware of things that they're doing. And we want you to know as mommy and daddy, we're not okay with it. Like we don't, we don't think it's okay. We're not tolerating it. And we want our kids to know so that there's never any confusion as they're growing up what is okay and what isn't okay within membership in a church. Because we all know people that claim Christ that we would all have serious doubts about whether they are a Christ follower? Is there anything that's happening in your social circle, in your family structure, that may be confusing to family members because it may look like you're tolerating and compromising in areas that you don't intend to? And I don't know if that sparks any questions. Um, I know I've dialogued with some of y'all about this, family members that are in sin and when to cut off fellowship with those family members and whatnot. And so I wanted us to just maybe dialogue doesn't even have to be specific situations. It may just be more broad. But if there's any questions as to how to even like approach this with your family that maybe we can talk about and, and I can provide some guidance on because I do think this is maybe where there's more of a threat to our children than within this local church because they may see something totally different. They may see stuff that's not tolerated here, but it does seem to be tolerated in our social circle or our family gatherings. And there may be some confusion. And for Lauren and I, We've distanced ourselves from some of our family members because we don't tolerate some of the behaviors and we don't want the confusion within our family structure. Um, questions or, or comments that that may bring about in your mind that we can talk about to kind of wrap things up today? All right, so for those that are listening on the podcast, we're, we're dialoguing about when to know when to cut off fellowship and when to pursue it because we do have a responsibility to be a light and to communicate the gospel to these people. So we've said that in some senses there's um, an opportunity to do that around holidays and social gatherings that don't put us in too close of an intimate fellowship with those individuals to where maybe they start to influence us more than we're influencing them. I think Dallas brings up a good point too. Are we talking about people that claim Christ or people that don't claim Christ? Because it's far easier to explain to our kids we are with these people and they do things, but they are not Christians. And so we should expect that they would act in such a way. I think it's far more confusing to, to be around potential family members who claim Christ, who go to church together, and potentially people are showing up pregnant or, or in gross sins that are known. And everybody's just like, yep, yeah, that's just what it is. And, there, and there's no like remorse. There's no brokenness. There's no, hey, this isn't okay, this needs to be dealt with, and, and then we can love, and then we can forgive, but there, there's some situations where it's just, it's just, it is what it is, just tolerated, and I think it can be very confusing to our kids where it's like, there's a bunch of people claiming Christ, and they're, they're acting 
contrary, and it looks like what we're saying that Thyatira was dealing with. You've got a mindset of the world and a membership within the church being merged together as though there's no conflict. Um, but I do think it's important to distinguish between, are we talking about people that claim Christ or people that don't claim Christ? Right, so Jordan's saying there's situations where maybe you've expressed your your disagreement with behavior to a family member, you've, you've shown them scripture, you've had those conversations, they've rejected it, do you then cut it off with the family, or are you expected to have those conversations all the time? And I do think that you, there, there is an obligation for us to confront sin and not tolerate it and to make that known. I don't think it's a requirement that that conversation is supposed to happen every time that you get together with those people. I would say that that conversation needs to be happening almost all the time with your spouse and with your kids, though. So if, I'm, if I've got a f- close family member that lives in, in rebellious, kind of known open sin, and every time we're together, like that's, that's something that we're all very aware of. Maybe, maybe it's family members that are living together that aren't married, right? And like they, they, they know your stance on that, you've communicated that, but they continue to do so. That you're not necessarily having the conversation with them constantly, but if you've got kids, you're constantly reminding them, hey, we don't think that's okay. Like, that, that, like I should never have to ask a kid in your family and then wonder or question if, if mom and dad are okay with that behavior or not. Like, I think that needs to stay front and center within the family structure that y'all are constantly reminding each other, we're not okay with this. Because I think you can become very numb to it as well to where, man, we're just, we haven't had that conversation in 10 years, and I'm just, I've almost gotten to the point where I'm just okay with it. You know, because I think then our kids are definitely going to be okay with it if they're not constantly being confronted with the fact that mom and dad aren't okay with this. And so we, we spend time with these people intentionally because we love them. They are family. We want to see them come to repentance. But I think that needs to be something that our kids are constantly reminded of. Because um, if that conversation happened one time, we may be good on, that, on our end, but our kids may not have been a part of that conversation. And so I think that needs to be a constant reminder for them. And you may become so numb to it that when there is opportunity for that conversation to come back up again, you don't take advantage of it because you've just grown used to it. And so it would have been a very opportune time and you just don't capitalize on it because you, you don't feel the brokenness over that sin anymore. You've become to tolerate it and you miss an opportunity, which is why you've even said we've maintained fellowship because we want to see them come to repentance. And I missed a chance to call them to repentance here because I've grown used to the sin. So Ryan's asking, do we call it out in the lives of unbelievers? I think yes, because they're giving you tangible examples for the sin that you're even talking about big picture-wise when you talk about the gospel. So as you're sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, here's, here's tangible things that we're talking about where you miss the mark of God's holiness. So it doesn't need to necessarily be portrayed as this main sin is why you're not right with God. Because I think that would be a mistake to highlight some issue as though if that issue wasn't there, the gospel wouldn't be as pressing upon you. But it does give tangible examples for, instead of just talking about sin in general, um, that it's giving some specific examples of things that need to be repented of. Right. Yeah, we would want to be careful in talking with an unbeliever that we don't, uh, we're not more concerned about some sins versus another in their life, that they're under God's judgment for sin specifically some sins that you even know about, but sin in general is certainly the, the cause that would bring them under God's judgment. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so age appropriateness is definitely something that has to be considered. 
And just even allowing the kids to even ask some questions that even give you insight as to, okay, now, now's the right time to talk about it. My, kid, my kids have never asked about my dad. I mean, I mean they, they, they don't even have a concept that I even have a dad. At some point, it will be appropriate for them to talk about why our family is broken and why we are the way that we are and, and why we don't see my dad ever. I have not felt the need to introduce that to them at this point because it's not, it's not something they're being faced with. It's not something they're even aware of. Um, at some point, that conversation will happen when I feel like they're at an age where it's more appropriate for them. But yeah, that, I think that's absolutely right that um, age appropriateness is certainly something that has to be measured as to how much effect is this going to have on my kid? How much can they even understand? Is it worth addressing now, or do I wait until it is a little bit more appropriate? Yeah, that's a great point to, to, to keep a prayer focus even before spending time with some of those people. I think that's a great way to just make sure you're constantly having that conversation with your spouse even. Right, right. And I would definitely say conversations with kids, the approach that your family takes, it should cause them to love the people that are in question more versus any type of resentment or any type of we're better than them. If it, if it results in you feeling like hey, we're better than them because we don't do those things, then it's probably not being approached with a gospel mindset. Like, there should be brokenness. Hey, we love these people. We're praying for these people. I want my kids to love them more because of those conversations and that prayer focus versus them coming to a gathering and, and thinking, man, we're just better than these people. Yeah, that's good. Just talking about the, the consequences that you can help your kids see as those things are playing out as well. And there's not really a right or, I mean, there's not like a, a right way, wrong way in doing this, I just, I think as I was studying this, I was like, man, this isn't necessarily a huge issue in our church. And so it just felt like an appropriate time to, to remind us that it may not be happening here, but it may be, we may be far more susceptible to it happening outside of our church, in our family structures, in our social gatherings. And a lot of us have family members that go to other churches where maybe some of it is being tolerated in those churches. And then our kids and our spouses are being exposed to it in our family structures and just being, being mindful to have those conversations where we keep it at the front and center of our minds that this isn't okay and repentance needs to happen so that God's judgment doesn't come upon that, um, I think is really important. Yes, David asked um, the, when, when uh, different levels of, of cutting off and how to know when each level has kind of been reached and how to respond in, in each situation. There's at least three of us in here that have had issues with our dad, and all three of us are handling it differently. And, and I think all three of us have thought through it. I think all three of us are handling it to the best that we know how for our context, and I wouldn't say that any of the three should be doing it necessarily any differently. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's a case-by-case, situation-by-situation that you have to really think through and, and figure out what's best for, for me in that context of do I cut it off or do I continue to pursue based on a, a lot of different factors. So I don't think there's a right or wrong blueprint for how to do it. Yeah, Toby's bringing up the fact that level of influence is important to consider too and that we limit the level of influence that one could have over our kids if they're living in sin, that we make sure that we guard and protect how much influence they could. So you could be spending time with them, but you've, you've really limited the amount of influence they could have over your kids to where it, it kind of negates the, the 
potential danger as if you were just like giving your kids to them for the weekend and, and not being sure what kind of influence they would have with you not being present. Right. Yeah, how known the sin is, Jordan's saying, is, is important to consider as well as to the type of exposure we would have. Did you have something, Miss Carolyn? Yeah? Yeah, Carolyn's saying that what Topi's mentioned is an act of discipline that we're even enacting in that situation, that yes, we can have fellowship, but there's parameters around that fellowship because of choices that you're making, and that even that is another way of having that conversation where you're calling somebody to repentance um, as well. So those are great thoughts. If you've got any questions as you're kind of thinking through this, don't hesitate to ask. Um, And if anything was not clear in what we were communicating and you have any questions or confusion, don't hesitate to ask me for clarification on any of that uh, either. Let's pray together. God, we do praise you and thank you for the chance to gather together this morning. Um, We thank you for the things that are clear in your scriptures, um, things that we're supposed to be as believers within this church. God, I pray that you would um, continue to create a, uh, a pure, loving um, environment here that values good theology, that values doctrine, but certainly doesn't value those things simply out of duty. Um, but God, that we are in love with those things because we're in love with you and we're in love with people around us and we want to serve uh, faithfully the ways that you've called us to. And God, I pray that you would protect us from any type of tolerance or compromise in our life that would make us susceptible to sin God, I pray that we would be faithful to repent of sin that's in our life as we become aware of it, as we're convicted by the Holy Spirit through your word, that we would not put it on the back burner and think that our good works uh, atone for those things and we don't need to repent. Instead, God, I pray that we would be faithful to address sin in our own life, um, help us to do so in such a way that we're a great example to those around us. God, give us wisdom outside of this church context with family members and friends that may be involved in sins that we don't agree with. Help us to put our families in positions where we can be around those people without compromising our own beliefs and our own views. Um, Help us to to be able to do so in a way that we protect our kids and help them to see the need for the gospel and the need for repentance and to never be confused based on what they're seeing and experiencing around them. Help us to put our kids in position to be spiritually successful. And uh, God, guide us in any decisions that we need to make. Uh, help us to continue this discussion this week in our family worship times. Um, God, help us to, to know better how to apply your word and where we're confused, that we would seek out others to help us better understand how to do it as well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.